Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. You're very welcome to Tuesday Afternoon's Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Thank you for joining us again. I have the My Mead competition coming up, €100 Euro for one of you this afternoon. I'll tell you a little bit a little bit more about that. And on Frank Sinatra is, of course, my artist of the week. And a lot in between to get through between now and half past three. 086 1800 658 WhatsApp or text is our contact number on the show. We begin today with um, a sad story because there are people who disappeared during the Troubles and they still haven't been found. But we have contrasting emotions for you today because I'm joined on the show by Sean McGraw, the brother of Bendon McGraw, whose body was found in Oristown Bog back in 2014, and Maria Linsky, who still hopes that the remains of her uncle Joe will be found someday. Hello to both of you. Welcome to the show. Hello, Jared. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for joining me. Marie, I'll start with yourself. It's 50 years this year since Joe was taken in 1972. Do you still hold out hope that you will and your family will recover eventually his remains? Well, you have to hope, you know. Um, that's the circle of life, birth to grave. And I would like to think that my uncle would be brought home to his grave. You know, um, 50 years ago, my father would have been dealing with us. Him and my siblings have passed, so it's left to the next generation to try and find Joe. And we do all we can to do that. You've been to Oristown? Yes, many times. What does that feel like when you go there and think about him? It's a big bog, and bogs are beautiful. But when you look out and think, this bog holds graves, it's a different aspect. And when we went down on Saturday to the mass, um, it was a very sad experience, but very uplifting. Bishop Tom Donahue, um was so eloquent in what he had to say and how about the cruelty. But what I'd like to say about the community, I didn't realise 
how they felt. The three bodies have come out of this bog that have been taken from Belfast, executed and buried. And one young couple actually came over to me who live on the bog road. And the wife said that she stops every day and says a prayer. You know, they are... They're hurting too. It's their community that us came out of. Mm. So you get fantastic solace from uh, moments like that and people coming to you and telling you how they feel about it as well and that they join in your desire that your uncle uncle would be found. Do you believe there are still people around who could, you know, make the connection and give the information? I do because I was 24 when my uncle disappeared. I'm still here. Mm. You know, so there has to be people that were young then and and information, you know, we don't get it. The, the commission get it. And it's all put together. You know, um it's it, it's one of them things you keep saying to yourself, Why? Hmm. Who thought of this? And what did they achieve for it? You know, um it's bizarre to think that anybody would take you, execute you and leave you and just never have a conversation about it. Mm. It's bound to be people has. Bound to be. Does that make you angry? At times, yes. Yes, it does make me angry. And then, as you know, when my uncle thought to find them, you know, how you feel at that particular time when you think the body has been found, mm. you know, and, and it, 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 thankfully it was two other people who got the best news possible. But it gives you an insight. I'm heart dreadful it actually was when you go down and you're, and the, the diggers are there and the commissions are, the archaeologists, you know, trying to bring this to an end. It, it's humiliating. It's all... I just can't explain how bad you feel. Mm. You know? How sad you feel. Yes. That, 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 that there's evil in this. It's hard to put it into it. words. Yeah, it's hard to explain how your deepest feelings are. We we, we hear what yeah. you're saying and, and those false dawns. And they were there were false dawns for you and your family, sadly, Maria, but not for others. Just stay there for a moment because I have uh, Sean McGraw, Brendan McGraw's brother, who disappeared in 1978 and whose body was found in Oristown in October 2014. He, he's with me on the show. Afternoon, uh, Sean. Good afternoon, Jerry. Just have been listening to Maria there. I can appreciate all her, the sentiments she has, but we had very much the same thing, you know. Mm. You were fortunate, if I can use that wor- word, it shouldn't be fortunate, it should be a matter of course that it happened, that uh, your brother's remains were found. What was that like when you got the news? It, um, it was the 1st of October, and I got a phone call from John Hill, who's, one of the lead people in the commission, and like the, the the search had resumed, but it was only that morning that they were really just getting things ready, and 
I think a digger driver who was clearing uh, a drainage ditch noticed something that caught his attention. And uh, then it turned out it was Brenton. I just, when John phoned me, I just couldn't. It took me a while really to take it in because it was, you know, such a surprise uh, so early in the dig that he had been found. It was like, it was good news, but at the same time, it was bad news because. You always had a little bit of hope that maybe he wasn't dead at all, you know. But mm. the fact that he was found and we could then start, uh, you know, the arrangements for funeral and things like that, it it was a relief. But I think that day when I was interviewed, somebody said, "How do you feel?" And I said, "Well, it's a good day, but it's a bad day as well." Yes. Yes. Yes, a, a day that brought conclusion, but a conclusion that should never have had to come about. 1978, when he disappeared, his wife was expecting their first baby at the time. He was only newly wed, re- relatively. Um, and, of course, it was claimed that he was an agent for the British. You'd dispute that entirely. Well, we would. like um, that, that, that story is under investigation at the moment. Uh, John Boucher from part of a big investigation into some of the things that went on then involving your man's steak knife. Uh, you know, we suspect a lot of people who were blamed were not the ones at all. It was a covered up thing, you know, but mm. we don't know. You can you can only speculate, but I can't imagine our Brenton being involved. Uh, I mean, he that particular weekend that he was taken away, the next day he was to go on board a ship and managed to get him a job. He'd been away for a week's trial, and he'd been uh, he'd be on that ship a weekly service to the continent. So he wouldn't have been much good as a, a spy or an agent sailing between yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, it, it didn't add up. Thirty six years from he disappeared, and then you have to have uh, the uh, laying to rest in a proper grave. That's not uh, easy either, is it? With that time span in between, and people who never saw his body recovered either. That's true. I mean, it was it was very hard for the family, and uh, I mean, his daughter is she was born the following October, and I mean, she never seen her father, and all she has is a few photographs and things like that. It's very hard for her. Brent was buried out at Glenavy, uh, was my mother and father. Uh, he was actually born out there. We lived out there with my grandparents, mm. and. Uh, The day that we brought his body back from Dublin, uh, three of his cousins flew in from Canada and we drove up to Belfast with the coffin. It was all... It's still emotional for me, you know. Yeah. Understandable. Really, really understandable. It's a shocking thing to have happened in your life to someone so, so close to you. Yeah. Is there ever, is, is there ever closure? Ever for you, even though you have recovered Brendan's remains and laid them to rest. Well, there is a certain clue, Jerry. You're not continually thinking like, "Where is he?" And we're going to find a solution. But mm. you continue thinking of the loss. Like, yes. One of the most sad things was, I think, it was about two thousand and three when the guarded dig was coming to an end, and I remember standing there with my mother and uh, the local superintendent and. At that stage, like we, it's all sounded very grim. It searched a lot there, and we didn't find them. And 
it's nearly like everything was coming to a conclusion. It's just going to be no hope. But uh, then in 2006, I think it was, um, we got a lot of help. Uh, the commission employed experts, and uh, Graham McDowell was the uh, McDowell was the Minister for Justice. Yes, Michael. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Michael McDowell. That's right. And things started to take off from there, like because like the guards were working. They were doing their best, but they didn't have the expertise in the, in the thing. Mm. And then we got the likes of Jeff Cooper and John Hill and a great team of diggers and things like that. And I think they made a big difference. Yes. If someone come forward now with information and give it a, a reasonable estimation of where they think they buried them, I have no doubt that the present team of experts would find them. Okay. No doubt. Yeah, so that's that may be consolation to uh, Maria listening to us there. You hear uh, what's been said, Maria, that the, the people and the expertise are there. And as I asked you a few moments ago, you still believe there are people who have that information. So there's hope. There's always hope. There's always hope. And the Commission works works very hard. And Sandra Blake from WAVE works exceptionally hard. If we haven't power. And we, I don't know where we'll be, mm. you know, because of family of ways that disappeared. We all, we're all together, whether we're finding the bodies or we haven't. They're always there for us. Yes. You know, um, but you have to have hope. Mm. You know, you, it dwindles and you say to yourself, I'm losing time. This time goes so quickly. But... It would be pointless if I hadn't hope. Yeah. You know? Yep. And it deserves to be fine. This is a cruel, cruel thing that has happened. And no one's used to it, you know? And we appreciate every time someone takes us for an interview that we can put this out in the public again. It's the only way that we can do it. Yeah. Well, look, it's 50 years and with the recent event there, that's why we're talking today. I thank you both for joining me. We think of your families and we think of uh, Brendan today and, of course, Joe. And please, God, it's sooner rather than later uh, that Joe's remains are found. Thank you both so much for joining me. I do appreciate your talking to me today on the show. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Maria. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Not at all. Take care of yourselves. Bye bye. Bye bye. Isn't it shocking when you think? It's terrible, really. And last weekend, they got together there. There was the mass and the coming together of people in the hope that those that are still missing would be found. And if anyone has a heart or can in some way give the information that could lead to the recovery, there are still three missing. It would be just fantastic news for the families now or into the uh, new year in 2023. You're with Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. The World Cup continues. Jerry Kelly's Brazil and Portugal are true. Miss Louise Walsh has our fingers crossed today because the Dutch are out. They're playing today. Uh, they're not sure, Louise, if they're through yet, but they're nearly through, if you know what I mean. They just, a draw, I think, or a win will do them today to minute, qualify. Louise. Oh, no, they'll go through. And then Argentina, we'll see what happens with them and on. But my two are through to the last 16. Mm. Brazil and Portugal.
Keep our lit, keep our lit, lads. Come on, keep her going. I think Brazil will win it. But, uh, do you? I do, I do. I think they have the best squad of players. I really do. I think Brazil will win it this year. But look, we'll wait and see. There's a lot of football to be played between now and the final itself. Any more surprises in the last few days? Oh, I, missed, I missed the last few Japan days. Japan were brutal. They were after beating Germany and then they were beating themselves by Costa Rica. Mm. It was a shocking result for them. Um, but they're the best fans for staying behind and they cleaning are, up. They are. They clean the whole stadium. Mm-hmm. They want to keep them forever. Uh, Belgium were beaten. That was a big surprise as well. Belgium were beaten and deserve to be beaten. They're an old ageing team. It's as simple as that. But anyway, the World Cup continues. Wales, England tonight will be glued to that one for sure. It's time to head towards top of the hour two and late lunch with this one. One of our favourites at Christmas time. Yeah, it's Mariah Carey. And all I want for Christmas is you, our late lunch listeners. Here we go. I don't care about the presents underneath the Christmas tree. I just want you for my own. Make my wish come true All I want for Christmas Is you I want to read a quote ahead of saying hello to my next guest and it's from herself. She says, I promised myself on the loneliest days of my journey as a parent of autistic children that someday I would write a book about my experiences to help other parents. And I did. And boy, has she delivered. She's a lecturer in health promotion at UCG. And I'm delighted, as I said a moment ago, to say hello this afternoon to Lara Mullins. Hello, Lara. Hello and good afternoon. Thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome to the show. The book is called, folks, It Takes a Village, Navigating the Journey of Parenting Your Autistic Child. I want you to begin by recounting, please, Lara, to my listeners, the lowest point, which you detail in the introduction. Tell them you were driving, what, with two of your children from an appointment? Yes, so this was very early days. So not long after I suspected that maybe my child had, you know, greater needs than we understood at that time. So um, my eldest girl, Ellie, was two and a half or three, very small in her car seat. And her younger brother was a year younger, so he was two. So we were driving up a road. It's very much, it looks like a dual carriageway. And I suppose people adhere to that speed limit, but it's actually a 30 um, mile an hour road because it's close to the city centre. So I heard the dreaded click where Ellie had unclicked her seatbelt, which was, you know, a really recurring problem while I was driving. But then before I could even react, she had actually unclipped her younger brother and he was on my lap while I was driving down the road. So there's no hard shoulder on this road and I had to just stop. So it's two lanes. So I stopped, put on my hazards. I leaned over into the back seat and started strapping them back in as quickly as I could. But just when I got myself back into my seat and had put my seatbelt on, I could hear in the background the screech of the Arctic truck that was coming behind me at speed. Um, I, like it's weird because you imagine your life flashing before your eyes. It was just sheer panic. My whole body. I, I don't even think I tensed because I just thought this is it. Um, so he jammed on the brakes. He pressed on the horn and he tried his hardest not to hit us. He was literally inches from us before he stopped. 
So both of us just sat there absolutely horrified at what happened. It was so close to being catastrophic. But the thing is, I didn't tell anybody about that because I was so embarrassed as a parent. I told my husband I was really upset, like flashbacks for weeks and months afterwards. But I didn't tell anybody else because I felt such shame and embarrassment that perhaps it was my parenting or something I was doing wrong that put my children at risk like that. Most dramatic opening, may I say. I've read many books in my time. If I had a euro for them all, I'd be a rich man. But what an opening, because you might not have been here to tell the tale or bring us your experiences in this brilliant book. You know, that was the lowest point. And you, in the book, you do explain there are some great days as well. But here's the thing, and I'm sure people with autistic children will uh, empathise and understand what you're saying. Isn't it shocking to contemplate today that you're saying there are still few services and little support? Yes, absolutely. And I'd love if I had been able to tell a different story in my own story. And I'd love if, you know, even from when I started writing the book two years ago, if things have changed, but they haven't. And even though I would be a really vocal advocate, um, be very well in a position to advocate for myself, which a lot of parents are not for lots of different reasons. Even with all of that, my own children are still lacking support services that they need. They just don't exist. That's a shocking indictment. It really is on us, us the people, you know, on the state as such. And but what you say is, you got to get up, you got to shout loudest, you got to battle hard for them, and that is the lie of the land. And that's what you have been doing. Now you, you have four of them. Ellie's nineteen, Daniel is seventeen, Alex thirteen, and Daisy is eight. Explain to me about Daniel. You say he's neurotypical. So what does that mean? Yes. So that means that he doesn't have any diagnosis of additional needs. So he doesn't have ADHD or dyspraxia or autism like his siblings do. So he's the only one of my four who doesn't have um, any diagnosis whatsoever. So he used to ask when um, he was smaller why he didn't have any appointments. And it was really interesting because Mm. I suppose I didn't think that he noticed. But sometimes with his siblings, they might have two or three appointments a week each you know, back in those days when we were going through an assessment, particularly with Ellie. So he couldn't understand why he didn't get that one on one time with me at appointments or with dad, you know. Yeah, it's it's poignant as well that Ellie, who's 19, writes the foreword to your book. And one thing jumped out of that at me, I have to say. Uh, she praises you to the hilt and I ain't surprised and her dad as well. And of course, all of your extended family. But she says, and it just got me. As I've been sitting outside the room, knowing that my mom or my dad or whoever were in talking to the specialist, you know that feeling she expresses there of not being part of it? Absolutely. And part of this was um, my request. So initially, when we started going to appointments, Ellie would be in the room with us and we'd be discussing challenging behaviour or getting a phone call from the preschool, you know, or something really like difficult that had happened. So I actually requested that she wasn't in the room when we were having those conversations because I thought that maybe it would be less detrimental to her emotionally. But her expressing how difficult it was to be outside of the room is it's just as tough to hear. Um, I'm really lucky in that she's very honest and her giving her blessing and okaying the whole book was really important to me. So I wouldn't have actually done this unless she had, because most of the experiences relate to my journey with her. Um, but her giving her insight now, I, I, I hope that she goes into practice herself with autistic young people, which she wants to do and really makes waves about those difficult experiences at appointments. It was such a big part of her life and it was it was difficult for her, very difficult for her. Mm. 
the book, the aim of the book, of course, is to set out your experiences and your challenging journey and to explore as well, you know, to tell people, number one, that they're not alone and, and there are solutions to a lot of things you encounter. Is that a fair enough assessment of why you did it? I think so, but definitely the alone part. So people have asked me, you know, was it really difficult emotionally to write the book or, you know, it must have took a lot out of you. I actually feel the opposite. It was written in my head for many years mm. and I really did promise myself I write about this. People are surprised by all the stuff I remember. But I think that writing it was was almost like journaling and I was taking some of the hurt off my soul, you know, got to do what what my family experienced. Um, so it was definitely therapeutic from that perspective. But I think the key message I want to highlight is that, you know, there's a lot of us as parents and as mothers that struggle and we don't get it right every time. Um, and that it's OK. We have this like major pressure on women in society and mothers to be everything and to be perfect and to you know provide care seamlessly to their children. Mm. And sometimes you have a day where it's just so hard that you'll find yourself in tears. And we don't talk about that. You know, we don't talk about the challenges or the difficulties. So I want to highlight that I'm not perfect. It's okay if other mothers are on this journey and they're finding it really, really hard. And that's why I said it takes a village. The reason that we do cope as well as a family are because of the supports that we have, particularly um, informally through our family and friends networks. But a lot of parents don't have those supports and they're really struggling. Yeah, and, and you know, that alone word you mentioned, if you took this book, and this is the biggest tribute I can pay to you, if you have an autistic child and you pick up this book on any day with a challenge you may face, I'm sure if you read this book, you'll find a section in it that can help you through those times. And that's the biggest uh, tribute I can pay to you for the book because that is what it is. It's a mini little Bible in terms of the challenges faced by parents and children. Um Talking about, you know, not getting it right, you, you, you talk about the professionals as well in this, in this and you have great praise for many of them. But you say also they don't get it right. And what you're asking is if they don't admit it, put your hands up, say it. Absolutely. And um, I suppose since I had my first child, I qualified as a social worker myself. My practice background is in social care. And um, we know a lot more about how to support families now than we did back then. But I think if maybe a professional doesn't know or maybe isn't clued in to then maybe take, you know, a back seat and maybe not make the comment or maybe not ask the question if it might be hurtful. I read something recently and I think it summarized how I felt about the services that we receive and professionals. It said you can't teach somebody how to swim when they're drowning. And if that's one message I could give to professionals supporting families knocking on all the doors and maybe three years waiting just to get an appointment to sit in front of you. If they're drowning, you can't teach them how to spin to, to swim. You need to meet people where they're at. Um, and also there's a lot of healing involved when you when you finally do get a diagnosis because you've been on the, the road. You don't know what pathway you're on before that and you're very much on your own. So at least with the diagnosis, then for me anyway, it was empowering. Mm. Um, but for professionals to be aware that you're just seeing the very tip of the iceberg when a parent and their child or parents and their children come into you in your office, you know, that there might be three years of heartache and, you know, really distressing, difficult days before that. Yes. And the other aspect on the medical side is medication itself. And you, th- there is no medication for autism, but there is no. medication for behaviours uh, by times. Mm. Where do you stand on that? 
And um, for us, there was a lot of judgment around it. But for us with Ellie, it was a godsend. Um, and I really believe that this is why we were able to get through in some of the most difficult um, periods. So particularly in terms of challenging behavior and when there's a diagnosis of ADHD as well, um, medication is more likely to be prescribed in that instance. Um, but for us, it gave us a life. It meant that we could go out socially again as a family. Um, it meant that Daniel wasn't being injured or hospitalized as frequently as he had been before. That was the level of challenge and behavior that we were coping with. It was um, very much like walking on eggshells um, at home. Um, and it wasn't that Ellie wanted to behave like that. She was really struggling to manage her own behavior and she was really struggling to communicate what her needs were. Now, we tried a few medications and they didn't work and we kind of reverted back around. And when she was 14, we found a medication that was life changing for us as a family. But to note that these type of medications are normally for use in the short term. So this medication that did work really well for us wasn't for long term use. So Ellie stayed on that for about a year and a half. But in that time, she had had a break herself, as in it gave her a little bit of respite from the emotions that she was struggling to communicate. And she learned a little bit more about how to regulate her own behavior. And she hasn't looked back since. Um, now, she still absolutely has difficulties, but she copes much better than she did. Now, for my younger two, would I medicate them if their needs warranted that? Now, they don't, thankfully, they don't have the same level of challenging behavior and they're both coping quite well in their schools and socially. But if that um, I, if that situation arose, I would absolutely consider it. But there was a lot of kickback. You know, people would openly say to me, you're not going to medicate your child mm. or why do parents just want to medicate their children? And I can't believe you're going to medicate her. She'll be like a zombie or, you know, she'll be awake all night or look, you know, she's lost weight because of that because of the medication or she's daydreaming. That's because of the meds. A lot of judgment um, and a lot of kickback. But you got to deal with that. And you did. And those words are outstanding as well from the pages when and I can just imagine uh, when people uh, talk like that and, and how it impacts on on you as a mother and father and family as well. The other thing is, you know, in life for any uh, child, transitions are difficult uh, and, and, and more so w- with your three. Yes, um, in particular now, and this has come up year on year, actually, with the three of mine and their needs are so very different, my three autistic children. But would you believe that Halloween is something that's a trigger for really, really anxious and challenging behaviour every year, particularly for my girls? So the uncertainty about what will happen um, and best laid plans. So these type of changes would occur when Christmas holidays arise when summer holidays arise, when there's a day off school and the return to school, all of these uncertainties or um, when their need for sameness has been interrupted. So anxiety is co-occurring in a really high percentage of children and young people who are autistic. And I think this is really important to note, like if we imagine anxiety from an adult perspective, how much more um, difficult and distressing that must be from a child perspective. And when change occurs or when, when uncertainty occurs, it creates massive anxiety for autistic children. And this is when you might see challenging behavior or this is when you might see school refusal. It's stemming from a fear. It's stemming from uncertainty and what the unknown is. Uh, I have a listener on to me, Anita, to say uh, that the hardest part uh, is to have to fight for services and being stonewalled with criteria to gain help. I have five children, all different ages, three on the spectrum. I love every part of them, but at times they needed help to function in this society of ours and what is expected of them. So I would love people if they didn't judge them uh, and look Mm -hmm. at them for their abilities. That's so true, isn't it? Thank you, Anita. 
Uh, absolutely. The hardest part of this journey was knocking on the doors. It wasn't parenting my children and mm. it wasn't coping with challenging behavior or coping with chronic anxiety for my children. It was actually trying to access supports for them. And it, it's a battle. And this is the thing it shouldn't be. And we need to conserve our energy and focus all of our efforts on supporting our children and, you know, helping them to be the best living people that they can be. But when you are three days filling out a form um, and maybe you're sent back the same form to fill out two more times, it's soul destroying. It's actually soul destroying. And when you ring and you're asked to ring another number and four phone calls later and nobody calls you back or you're on a waiting list and you don't know if you're still on the waiting list because it's been two years and then you get a letter and you think, yes, this is my appointment, but it's actually saying, do you still need these services? Things like that are soul destroying. Or when you get a generic letter, this is one message to professionals. I never want to open a letter that says, um, dear parent and your child. I want to see dear Lara and Kenneth. And I want to see in relation to X, Y or Z child. That's really important. The generic letters, it, it feels like a stab in the heart. It really does, particularly after two years on a waiting list to get a generic dear parent letter. Mm. It is indeed. Look, I have to leave it there today. I'd love to talk on to you for much longer. I, I want to say to you again, this book is brilliant. You've done a wonderful, wonderful job and you've done a great service to people who find themselves in the same situation as yourself and will do uh, parents over the uh, years ahead. Look, I wish you Thank well you with so it. Much. No, not at all. I recommend it highly. It's called It Takes a Village, Navigating the Journey of Parenting Your Artistic Child by Lara Mullins. It's available everywhere at the moment. If you're if you're somebody listening to us today that's touched by this, I recommend this book highly. And I wish yourself, your husband, your family, Ellie, Daniel, Alex and Daisy, all the very best. Thank you so much for taking time Thanks. to join me. Thanks. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Lara Mullins there. Uh, Anita, uh, just I'm keeping this book for you, Anita. I'm sending it out to you in the post. I really loved your message there and uh, it'll be out to you in the post this evening. Thank you, Anita. Late Lunch LMFM Radio up next. It's your Two on Tuesday. It's time for our Two on Tuesday. Two on Tuesday. Playing the songs that just never quite made it to number one. But we were so close. I'm supposed to be number, number one. one. We were so close. Two on Tuesday. Yes, today's Two on Tuesday was recorded initially in the French language by Daniel Van Gard and Jeanne Kluger, collectively known as Atouan, and released in 1979, but it would be the following year, 1980, and the English version that became a big hit in the UK, reaching number two on the charts, where it remained for three weeks. The song's name is an acronym coming from the lyrics in its chorus in which a woman is described as D-I-S-C-O. I bet you lots of you shook your booty to this one in the discos of the 70s and 80s and beyond. Here we go, your two on Tuesday. D-I-S-C-O Disastrous Impossible Super special Crazy, crazy Miss Louise Walsh, D I S C O. Were you listening? Yeah, can't believe you think I'm disastrous. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, delightful. <laughs> you said disastrous. Don't even think about rolling back on it. I did. I said I was listening to the wars. I don't really mean it. It's in I jest. thought that was it's delirious. <laughs> Delightful, intelligent. <laughs> oh, you oh. have it all. You have it all going stop on digging, for you. Stop digging. <laughs> I only mean about when I look at your diary. Just stop digging. <laughs> look at the. Oh, yeah, I'm digging. You're nearly an Australian. The whole, <laughs> the hole is big enough. <laughs> <laughs> but you laughed yourself. Come on, admit it. I did. It. I you did. did. I you did, laughed yeah. yourself. You I did indeed. Anyway, disco. The big, big hit number two back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god I'm going to get rid of that shovel now and the number one uh, that kept it from top spot from their third album Zenyata Mondata I have it in the attic their third song to reach number one on the UK singles charts here it is the one that kept disco off top spot the young teacher the subject of school she wants him so badly Knows what she wants to be Inside her is I'm so jealous Yes, the number one was Don't Stand So Close To Me. That's a jizzed up version or something of it, is it? A more recent version. Yeah. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. I love the original version of the song. Anyway, disco or Don't Stand So Close To Me. Which one? Disco. Disco? Yeah, I think so. Really? I do like the place, but I just think it's... Yeah, there you go. So a bit there. jizzier. I'm now. I thought you'd go for the police, but I'm pleasantly oh, I do like surprised. The police, but yeah, I just yeah. thought that's a bit disastrous, <laughs> <laughs> insightful. <laughs> so it's I've just pulled your fader down. <laughs> <laughs> you see, she has the power. Louise has the power on late lunch. The real power for sure. Anyway, that's your two and Tuesday for another week. Coming up next on the show, a lumberjack from Mead. Selling his story. Now, my next guest on the show, I'm looking at him here up a huge tree, a huge oak tree in Glasnevin Cemetery in Dublin. And he caught her attention. He was in last weekend's weekend magazine of the Irish Times. He's a lumberjack. I thought lumberjacks were confined to Canada or the wilds of America. He's from County Meath. Wesley Monaghan, welcome to Late Lunch. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. Are you on ground today or are you in a tree as you talk to me? No, well, I'm definitely not in a tree as I talk to you. I'm after getting down. We're in Rathout, actually, in a nursing home here doing uh, probably one of the largest copper beech trees seemingly in the country. There's only a crowd here this morning measuring it up, doing height and circumference and the whole shebang. So I think it's making the record uh, books. Are you taking it down? No, definitely not. No, a limb fell out of it. So it's after being uh, braced up and pruned and preserved. So the complete opposite of what's after happening in Glasnevin because in, in in hindsight there can be some backlashes when the trees are coming out it's hard to keep everyone happy to be honest but like over 300 years old them oak trees in Glasnevin were and then so not everyone was on the on the side of them coming down but like when you weigh everything up of what was around them and the damage that one of them previously caused when mm. it fell mm. there wasn't much 
left for it. Oh, you make a good point there. And along our roadways as well, I often look at them, you know, you'd see a big ash rotten and that, and they're potentially killers if they're not taken out of it. You know that, Wesley. I, I do, but at the same time, not everyone knows that. Like, I definitely have people drive by uh, several times and be saying, how would you sleep at night? But you're looking after a day's work at this, you definitely, you sleep like a log. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. But as I say, it's hard to keep, and that is across the board for any job. Sometimes you'd have to, You'd have to crack an egg to make an omelette, as I say, but yeah. it doesn't just appease everyone when you're doing roadways, clearing for sites, that kind of stuff. So you wouldn't be on everyone's Christmas list. And then other people then are so thankful and grateful. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and we only, we'll only realise that when there's a storm and it blows hard and one comes down and we hear the sad news. That tree that you're pictured in, and I said, I'm sitting here looking at it, that's a monster of an oak tree that you were taking down, isn't it? It was probably one of the most trickiest trees. Honest to God, it's not too often. It's... Um, so far, like I'm, I'm, I'm twelve or twelve to fourteen years at the uh, tree surgery now, and that is the biggest um, oak tree that, especially, we had to take down by full dismantle. It was very, very awkward now. Mm, there's boughs coming out of it everywhere from uh, the trunk of the tree. Uh, that was a big challenge indeed. Tell us about you. you. You say you're 12 years at this, but you're 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 not first generation of this by any I'm means. Not, no, no, I'm third generation. So, like all before me was as. It would have been more commercial than the things where they would have been and cleared kind of a forestry standing of timber. So that would have been back to what you were describing as like real lumberjacking. Mm. Um, so they would come in and they would take out a stand of a woodland and a lot of it would go for commercial, for veneers and different stuff and firewood. So I would even grow up around that environment. Not so much what I'm at today. It's kind of like like every job. It's kind of changing. There's different ways of working, different stuff. So probably when I hit my early 20s, I just took it to a a different direction altogether of tree surgery, retaining trees, awkward stuff, site clearings, and mm. I would have got well geared up with machinery. And as I says in the article, like I would be stone delirious mad into what I do. Like I really would be into it. And um, I think when you're into something, you'll be good at it. And when you're good at it, then you can be successful at it. Yes, yes. And you've been very successful because there are competitions for, you know, tree felling as well. And you've won, what, the last four Irish well, championships? The four and the last, yeah. The last, so the last Irish championships probably was four years ago. It went through, um, I think there was maybe six or seven years. I had a good run of it in my early 20s. Mm. And I, probably looking back, maybe I was lucky or whatever, but I got to do so much. Travelled a lot of Europe um, with still and doing representing Ireland in competitions on the European stage and the world stage and like I loved it but to be fair like anything it, when you have to be competitive it was so time consuming to train and then your work and vice versa and I was caught in the middle I could neither commit to one or the other properly so it was kind of a, unfortunately even though I would still have a small hand in the timber sports doing bits and pieces here and there I, I fully committed to Work what you're doing now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Oh, you see, you, you won the trophies, you've done that, that's history at this stage. I you don't mo- want to sound like that. I'm still young enough, but at the same time... No, yeah, no, yeah, no I know, we hear what you're saying. This is, without doubt, a very physical job. So you really... A level of fit, physical fitness is a prerequisite, I take it. 100%. And that, but that... I mean, in a lot of jobs, when you're working outdoors, you need to have a certain a certain level of fitness and mm. I mean when you're active and healthy and eating right like don't get me wrong we're not like but I would treat ourselves like athletes like literally you were when you're up early in the morning and working physical every day you do have to mind yourself and eat right and it's like anything yeah. um, 
or any job outdoors. So no, I would try and keep active and keep fit and mind myself. And the same with the lads, uh, Ben and Ke- uh, Callum that's with me. They would all mind themselves and keep fit. And that would then work is so much more enjoyable. Yeah. And head for heights is another thing you, you'd have to have. I know I see you with all the harnesses on and the gear like that when you're doing big jobs, but that's another point. Head for heights and health and safety, sure. It, it, it's paramount, isn't it, in your like, game? Like, like Anton, to be honest with you, it's, it's paramount and you never get too complacent. So, like, sometimes when people are asking you, you can feel like different things and you would kind of feel the pressure it's not you would just never the only thing that would keep a lad safe is never getting too complacent or getting to a point where you know it all that is the beauty I am not a creature of routine and that's why I would be into what I do like you're a tree surgeon you're a machine driver a truck driver someone in the mornings you're a half psychologist there with lads coming in so you're a bit of everything so every day is different but when you get complacent um, that's that's when accidents happen. So you trust in your gear, trust in all your stuff, and just never get overconfident. And 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 that I think keeps you safe. The tree coming down to the ground is a, a specialist job, and you you are mighty skilled at it. And the lads who work with you, you know, we I have a traditional thing in my mind that I see a fellow with a saw taking a little chunk out of one side of a tree and then going the other side with the saw. Is that what you always do? Is that the process? That would be, like, generally, that would be the very basic process. There might be a few things that where you might do something kind of different. So when you're craning stuff off, you would tend to have different cuts. There's probably three or four different cuts that you choose. This probably may be hard to explain over the the radio, but in general, what you've just described for felon is 100%. That's the basics. There might be a slight variation of that, but generally the basics will stay the same. And can you get a tree to fall in the precise direction that you want? Because you know yourself, you're talking about what you're doing there. Uh, you know, trees have to go a certain way, not to knock buildings, not to cause damage. I'll be honest with you. So at the start, when you're really into it, so like there's aids. So like if you were pushing over with a machine or a wire rope and winching it over, or if it was kind of relatively straight and sledges and wedges and stuff like that, like you'd have your your beak, your board's beak, if you like, for your direction of felling. And depending on how light, like sometimes it's nearly just like physics. Mm. Like when it doesn't look, and you can, I mean, everyone, when you look at it from that frame of mind, outside of the tree, the way it's lying, what weight is roughly in it, then you can kind of assess roughly what you might need to pull it over in that direction, what kind of a lie is going to be on it, and so many different variations. But generally, when you've, with the machinery now that's there, like unless it gets, if it can't be felled, unless it's really awkward, it might be that seldom time for dismantle. But with some of the stuff that's out now, like I mean, it'd want to be a huge, huge tree in a completely wrong direction that you can't pull over or winch or whatever the case may be. Mm. The saw, of course, is your main implement of felling and doing the uh, maintenance work you do as well. Has to be said as well. You know, you hear people they take up a saw for the first time and have a go at something. Not recommended. Well, look, in any, that's in any aspect of life. You, you're going to have give-it-a-go heroes across the board. And I, I can't judge otherwise. So there's saws there for sale. It'd be a plumber, right? Going to a lad to take on, fix a leaky tap, and all of a sudden the upstairs is half flooded. So you're going to have that in every shape or form across the board of jobs, unless it gets really tricky. So where that does tend to happen is sometimes the handy tree out the back where your man's going, it's not that bad, it looks small from mm. here, and next thing you're up in a ladder. And there's so many different things when you're not at it that can go wrong that they're not thinking of. And it, there is a yeah, huge accident rate, but it's very hard for me to, like, unless even for advice, but there is, like anything. And then on the other side of it, 
there is the case where you're ringing lads and you can't get lads to come out and like we genuinely would be on top of our heads and I'm sure there's a lot of lads in the same boat and it's very hard to get round to everything yeah. so you're going to get someone that gets frustrated or something and they'll tackle it themselves but all you can do is advise against it and yeah. because when you do hear the, the horror stories and yes. when I'm at the game I actually do hear them and sometimes you just you know yeah, yeah. Oh no, there's, there have been and it's a, it's a very good point to make today. Have patience, let the professionals come. You might have to wait a bit of time but everybody will be safe and sound afterwards. I had an Earl of Burnham tree myself lately and it, I loved it and it got a disease and it didn't flower for the last couple of years. Well, I went out with a handsaw last week but the thick part at the bottom I can't go near a bit of it. Do you come across, you know, lovely trees that you feel sad about that get diseased like that? Oh, definitely, hundred uh, percent. But as I say in the article, so people was I was kind of on fire when lads were saying Jizzy talk to the trees, and that was uh, that was very. There was nothing rehearsed. That was very honest and very true. I actually do, but especially when they start to get to an exceptional point, it's not a case of walking down the street and having a chat there with a with the laburnum that's kind of just tipping it across the footpath. Mm. It's when they get to that size, they're so majestic and the size of them. And, I feel like they are kind of half listening because everything deserves that respect, when, especially when you're taking it down. And whether it's right or wrong, in my head, let it be superstitious or not, I fully believe when I'm chatting and I'm explaining the thing, it, everything is kind of going to plan, if that makes sense. Yes. Would you be suspicious about taking down a fairy ring? I wouldn't go near it. I definitely, I'm superstitious. I definitely am, and I believe by... So my, my the only thing I could say across the board... Knowingly taking down a fairy ring is where there's going to be trouble. But like, there is definitely areas when you're not sure and you didn't even realise maybe till it was too late. Now it hasn't happened to me, but it's, if it's a lone bush or a fairy ring, and if you actively know that it's that and you're going in to take it down, I think that's where the camera is going to get you. And I do believe that 100%. So if I did know, I wouldn't even go near it. No way. Well, that is just something else. That that, you know, mythology uh, remains to today. Because I remember my late father as well. We had an instance where we had a ring and we were sort of going to tackle it and that. He wouldn't touch it either. He would not go near it for life, no money. He says you'll have no luck in your life if you ever do. And you still believe that? Well, I would shake that man's hand because he's <laughs> 100% right. I believe that and... Uh, and nothing would steer me from it. Like especially if actively knowing it. So when your yeah. dad said that to you, um, and you went, to, you went, if you still went ahead and then that's that's I feel like yeah, that's when the fairies are saying no, this lads. There you go. If it's accidental, all right. But if it's on purpose, you're in trouble. Are you still with me, Wesley? Well, you know what? Is he gone? Wesley's gone. Have the oh no! Sorry, I'm still here. Still, I'm still Jesus, here. Wesley, I thought the fairies interfered for a moment there, and us talking about the rings and everything else, and they just cut you off, and it really did bring it to reality that they're listening to us and they're everywhere. There you well, there go. There you are now. That's some timing. That is some timing is right. Anyway, listen, you're one of life's good guys. You absolutely love what you do. I get it from uh, just listening to you today and uh, reading about you at the weekend as well. I wish you many years of happiness at your work and safety too. And thank you for joining me on the show today. You're more than welcome. Thanks for having me. Talk Take care you. now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wesley Monin. <laughs> My God, I says, there are the fairies on late lunch today. On the airwaves. In the name of St. Christopher. You never know, do you? The Late Lunch Artist of the Week. Artist of the Week. 
Frank Sinatra is my artist of the week this week and Sinatra's pursuit of a solo career and departure from the Tommy Dorsey band as lead singer was a fractious affair. Rumour has it Sinatra's mobster godfather Willie Moretti forced Dorsey to release Sinatra from his contract which he did in September 1942. However, Dorsey and Sinatra never spoke again in their lives. Sinatra mania as it became known, was unleashed on the world while playing the Paramount Theatre in New York in December 42. Near riots had to be quelled by police. Such were the numbers who wanted to see the young phenomenon but couldn't get in. He dodged military service in 1943 because of a perforated eardrum, a condition, in fairness, he had from birth. But rumours always persisted. He greased palms to avoid the call-up. But he did go to Europe during the war to entertain the troops on a number of occasions with comedian Phil Silvers, a.k.a. Sergeant Bilko. Many would remember him. By the end of the war, Sinatra was a really big star, reportedly earning, at that time, $100,000 a week. And when he returned to New York City and the Paramount Theatre, police estimated there were almost 40,000 outside looking to catch a glimpse of Sinatra because of his interpretation of songs like My Choice Today. For strangers in the night Da 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 di da do da 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 da. Mr. Frank Sinatra, my artist of the week on your late lunch with an absolute classic. Twelve minutes gone. It's Holland, the Dutch, the Netherlands. Nil, guitar nil. But it's like ping pong in the guitar box. <laughs> the Dutch. The match should be over already. Here they come again. Uh, poor guitar. They're on the rack. They might take the ball and go home. The guitaries might say, "Well, feck this altogether. We are out now." <laughs> <laughs> they can't do that. Of course they can't. Anyway, if the Dutch don't win this easily, I will be surprised. Anyone watching the Sean Quinn documentary on RTE last evening? I watched part one. Part two is on tonight and part three tomorrow night. I really enjoyed it, I have to say. I'll be glued again tonight. It's insightful. It, uh, you know, shows you the uh, the Quinn side of things as well. And I'll be interested to see now how it progresses. Congratulations to the team that made it. It is a really well-made piece of television. And I'll be watching, as I said, again this evening and tomorrow. You're with Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. While I'm talking about TV, well, my next guest has a wee business uh, in the northeast and they got a mention on tv and well all hell broke loose they ran out of stock but they're they're back up and stocked again and looking forward to the christmas carol curtis from hannah lee studios is with us next hannah lee studios are based outside slane in county mead they sell a lot online carol curtis is with me from hannah lee hello carol Hello, Jerry. How are you? I'm really good. Well, it just shows you the power of the toy show and TV. Were you featured or just got a mention? No, we were featured. We right. were featured very much. So we didn't know what to expect, Jerry, to be honest with you. So I had been talking to RTE about getting something on the show and like they were so lovely about it. But it, it, due to the nature of the show, it's just really difficult to know what way it's going to go mm. on the night you know so we were blessed we were so lucky we got really lovely exposure on the TV um, and just really got to get our products out there so we are over the moon with it all 
you're sold out of Quillos. Yes, we are. We sold out uh, by Saturday morning. They were completely gone. They just there were people ordering them all through the night. <laughs> yeah. And the fox and the owl ones in particular. These are pillows, are they? Uh, children's pillows. Yes, they are. So they're they're kind of called pillow quillow, but they're actually more like a cushion. Yeah. Uh, the size of a cushion, and we put the child's name on the back of it, and then they zip down. It kind of zips on three sides, and it opens up into a full size quilt. So they're great. Like my kids have them for the past two years. They've gone on camping trips, on airplanes. Yes. You know, for movie nights, they're dragged through the muck and thrown into the washing machine. Like they're fantastic. So, and I suppose the good thing is that they're not just for Christmas. You know, they're great for birthday presents through the year and everything. And we'd be hoping now we'll get them back into in the new year at some stage so we're just waiting uh, for a date from our suppliers Okay so you're out of those at the moment sold out so it's a combination of the pillow and the quilt quillow the the combination name is what you get there it'll do either it'll cover or you can rest your head or your back or whatever else on it they're beautiful I've been looking at them they are so gorgeous you have a wonderful range I may may I say to you Thank you so much thank you. you You have and you know besides these what else is popular like round Christmas time now with you? Well, the second most popular thing, once the quillers are gone, people started coming on and buying what's called the cuddle cushion. And these are, they're like a really soft, beautiful white velvet cushion and they've got a pocket in them and you kind of, the idea is that you get a book um, and you put the book in and it's a lovely way to kind of gift a book and there's a little rhyme or a little poem on the cushion itself that says, you know, something about, you know, cuddling up and reading together is my favourite thing to do. So there's two designs, we two designs at the moment, but we probably will add to that after Christmas um, and they're really, really popular because it's just something different. You know, it's, it's just something away from the norm and it's a really nice personal gift to give somebody. And obviously with regards to reading with kids and getting them books, like you can't really be giving them a better gift than that, you know. Mm. You, you uh, have uh, uh, quite an aspect of your business geared towards weddings as well. Yes, yes. Um, I don't think that was the general direction to go Um you know, that was the intention, Jerry. Just kind of when we had set up, we had all kind of the backlog of weddings after COVID. Mm. And it just naturally kind of gravitated that way. We started doing a few products and we were asked, you know, can you do a little bit more and a bit more? And it just kind of flowed that way. Now, we've, I think probably our first, what we started off was kind of more baby things. Um, but it just kind of gravitated towards the wedding market because it was huge. Now, it's starting to kind of settle down a little bit now and getting back to the numbers that it had been pre-COVID. And we're kind of getting a little bit more time now to work on our children's products and our baby products. And I mean, we love it. We absolutely love it. This is a home-based business. This is just from my front room at home. Um, it was when we were building our house um, many moons ago, it was destined to be the good Irish sitting room, you know, when you bring your guests in at Christmas yes. and, you know, take your shoes off at the door. <laughs> it never got that far and I've converted it now into a full studio. So it's mm. my little woman cave and I operate out of there. And is it just you? Um, on paper, it is just me, but like it is a family business. So yes. My dad, uh, my dad is fantastic now. He does all the woodwork, so he stains all our baby keepsake boxes and he does handmade um, wooden frames. My mum does all the sewing. So on those cuddle cushions, for example, we've got gorgeous little tutus on the fairies and they're all handmade by my mum. Um, even the dog is roped in with product photography. He's roped in for a few <laughs> photographs. So anyone that comes to the door, Jerry, gets a job in our house, I tell you. <laughs> if you're a fly in that house today, even though you might only live 28 days, you'll have a job for sure. Absolutely. The name. <laughs> don't, you don't sit idle in our house. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about the name, Hannah Lee. Hannah Lee actually is Korean. So uh, back in a past life, when I was a young one, um, I was a 
English teacher in Korea. I spent um, just over a year there and I had given all my middle school students an English name and they in return gave me a Korean name. So it was in the Korean form, it's Ihana, so the family name comes first. And then obviously in, in our own kind of version of it, it's Hana Lee. And mm. I loved it. It's a really special part of my memories from when I was younger. And it, obviously it was an obvious choice for my little company when I set it up two years ago. It's lovely. There's a nice ring to it. And I, I'm delighted you told that story. Kimchi, do you like it? Love it. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody who goes there to spend time there says the very same thing. And yeah. it's so good for you too, isn't it? It really is, actually. And they have it with every meal. Like, I remember mm. having pizza with a co-teacher one night and she started cracking up laughing because she forgot to bring the kimchi out with the pizza. <laughs> like, it really is served at every meal. <laughs> now, for you, like, when you look at your range that you have and that demand that's been prompted and, like, your your potential market is growing all the time in an online business, can you keep it in the front room? Ah. Uh, I would like to, Jerry. Yeah, I would. Um, like, I've I've a young family as well, so I kind of just like to, you know, to keep things real. And I was this summer, you know, when they were off, I was able to take three weeks off and just, you know, spend a little bit of time mm. with them. So, like, it is. I'm sure any working parent will know it. It's a fine line. Yes. Ah. Oh, we lost you there. Might try and get her back just for a quick second to say goodbye. We'll give her a shout there again. If we don't, well, you have the gist of it, haven't you? Great wee story, and it just shows you, you know, when you're featured on radio or TV, it really can make a big difference to your business, and it certainly has to Carol Curtis and Hannah Lee. Check her out, hannahleestudios.ie. That's H-A-N-A. L-double-E, Hannah Lee Studios dot I-E and after the Late Show and uh, the Toy Show in particular, well as you heard there a range of her products are uh, gone uh, completely but there's plenty more there to check out she's uh, she's disappeared, I told you that we shouldn't have mentioned those fairies at all today, it all started with Wesley Monaghan when I brought up the fairy ring and they're interfering in our calls ever since anyway so that's the story and uh, we're sticking to it, tomorrow on Late Lunch Wednesday, Leah Duffy is joining us. Her brother Mark is missing. She wants your help. Keith Barry is back with me on Late Lunch. The magical man himself, Katrina Madden, will be here. She's uh, written a beautiful new Christmas song and she has a link with a fella called Michael Bublé. And we'll be having a chat with Ashley Bell, big award winners at the North East Business Awards at the weekend. And, of course, more besides. I have that €100 Euro My Mead card to give away on the show again tomorrow. Paul McKenna is coming next with The Drive here on LMFM. But we leave you in the company today of the weekend and blinding lights. Enjoy your Tuesday. See you tomorrow. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.